Uh, well, they're familiar verses, aren't they? And it's good to be reminded of that truth that the Apostle Paul wrote to the young uh, pastor Timothy. He said these words, uh, All scripture is God-breathed, all scripture, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, God, we thank you that we can have confidence that this story, even though it's very familiar to us, still has uh, yet more riches to uh, to tell us this evening. Uh, thank you that it is God breathes. It's true. It's not a myth. It happened. Uh, thank you that it is useful for teaching us, teaching us truth, uh, rebuking us where we are wrong, uh, correcting us and training us in righteousness that we all may be equipped for the good work that you've called us to do. So we pray uh, this evening as I speak uh, and as we listen. Uh, please may we hear your word to us afresh this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it would be great help to me if you could keep that passage from Luke uh, open in front of you. We're going to have a look at it over the next uh, few minutes. Uh, it sometimes pays to take a closer look at something. Uh, a few years ago, uh, an archivist was examining some rather tatty and battered paintings that uh, were taken from a house called Denham Court. It's an a, a old country house in uh, Buckinghamshire. Uh, when uh, the owners went bankrupt, uh, it got uh, taken into uh, ownership by the local authority, and they used it as a borstal. And it was a borstal for 30 years. This country house went from a, a, a grand residence to a borstal. Uh, Anyway, she was examining these paintings that had been taken from the borstal. It closed down, and they cleared everything out. Uh, They were really, really, really tatty. Uh, They'd been used, I think, as a dartboard for quite a lot of the time, uh, kicked around. Uh, You can imagine what borstal boys were like with them, no respect whatsoever. Uh, They were in a pretty poor state. Uh, And something about one of them in particular caught her eye. Uh, they were going to go get chucked in the skip, but she managed to uh, get them to, to, uh, to pause. Uh, she summoned a, uh, an expert, uh, and the expert discovered that one of them was the only known painting of the home of Rubens, the, uh, the, the, uh, the artist. Uh, it is priceless in value. Uh, they couldn't put a figure on how, uh, how valuable uh, that painting was. And yet for 30 years it had been mistreated, used as a dartboard, kicked around, they'd thrown footballs at it, you name it. Uh, Familiarity can breed uh, contempt. And I think in many ways that's the problem that we have uh, with this story, isn't it? We all know it just a little bit too well. Uh, Luke's account is a bit like those pictures. It's so familiar, there's so much damage that's been done to them over the, uh, the centuries as more and more tradition has kind of been overlaid over the top of it. Uh, that we, we're tempted, I think, just to discard it and say, well, we know what it's got to say, and it's got nothing to say to me uh, today. And yet, yeah, I've been really thrilled this week, as I've looked more closely at it, uh, that there's so much here uh, that Luke wants to show us. Uh, and I want to just uh, uh, take, it, take us through step by step. Luke divides his story into uh, three main sections, and I just want to look at them briefly uh, in, in turn and see what they have to say for us. So let's uh, dive in straight away, shall we? Uh, The first uh, um, part of the story that Luke has for us uh, is this census, which I think Luke's trying to teach us uh, is all about the Scriptures' promises. The Scriptures' promises. Uh, It was uh, Benjamin Franklin who said that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes, that well-known quote. And it's a sign, isn't it, of a very, very powerful regime that they can control both of those factors 
in a subject's life. Think about it. Uh, Rome had the power to put people to death, and they had the power to summon uh, taxes off them. And it's taxes that we're dealing with here. Uh, The Emperor Augustus has decreed that every uh, man in every province uh, should return to his hometown uh, in order to be registered. Uh, Luke doesn't exactly tell us what it was for, but almost certainly it was for the purposes of taxation. It's very common for the Romans uh, to do that. Uh, The inland revenue, as it were, of the the Roman Empire to know where everyone was, uh, to register them, in order they could extract the maximum amount of money uh, for them. Uh, And Joseph, being an obedient citizen, of course, obeyed. On the surface, it seems just like, it's the tale, isn't it, of a, of a tyrant who's just flexing his muscles, Augustus, trying to extract the maximum amount of money that he can and make his subjects' lives an absolute misery. And yet underneath, I think Luke wants to show us that we can see the hand of God at work, uh, confirming to us that this baby, the Lord Jesus, really is the Messiah that the Scriptures have been promising. Uh, for example, uh, Luke is very keen to emphasise that Rome is ruling over uh, Judea at that time. Uh, And he's doing so because he's recalling an ancient promise that goes back all the way back to Genesis, to uh, to Jacob. Uh, Back in Genesis uh, 49 and verse 10, you can look it up later if you you want to, uh, there was a promise given by God to Jacob that the scepter would depart from Judah. Uh, And that was uh, something that has very much happened uh, by the time of of, of, uh, Jesus' birth. Uh, think about it, uh, Judah was, uh, Judea was being ruled by a pagan nation, Rome, uh, so uh, it wasn't even, they weren't even in control themselves. The puppet king Herod, who was sort of, in theory, nominally on the throne, uh, he wasn't a Judean, he wasn't a Jew, he was an uh, Idumean. He was born of, uh, of the Edomites. He wasn't uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Jude- uh, Judean heritage. Another promise uh, in the prophet Daniel. Daniel had said that the civilised world uh, would be under one ruler when the Messiah came. Daniel 2, verse 40. Uh, We can see that Luke is carefully constructing his story to show us how these politics that the scriptures promised had to happen uh, are being fulfilled. Well, apart from the uh, politics, uh, Luke says secondly that uh, in in Jesus being born to Joseph, uh, he fulfills that promise that the Messiah would be of David's line. It's that famous uh, chapter from Isaiah, isn't it? We always read at Christmas. To us, the son is born. To us, the child is given. Uh, the promise is that he will be of David's line, of David's throne. You think back to the Old Testament. David was uh, Israel's greatest king. He was a man who uh, achieved many great things. He also had many flaws. Uh, and, as, and though he was a great king, Scripture promises us that, in fact, he was merely a forerunner of a greater king uh, who was yet to come. A greater David, one who would rule forever. He would be of David's line, true, but he would rule forever uh, with justice and righteousness. By the time of uh, Jesus' birth, the events that we're, we're looking at, uh, David's line had all but disappeared. Uh, they, uh, they'd had years of exile, think back through Israel's history. They'd been taken to exile, they'd had captivity, there'd been wars, all kind of manner of things. Uh, the royal line of David uh, had almost uh, disappeared. There are a few records here and there, but in real terms, it was basically over. And yet, despite that, here we see the promise of a greater David fulfilled. Uh, we're told, aren't we, that uh, Joseph, verse 4, belonged to the house and the line of David. You trace the family tree all the way through, and you see that particularly uh, at the start of Matthew's Gospel. 
And we see that Jesus fulfills that promise. He is of the line of David. The scripture's promise of the Messiah's ancestry all comes together. Uh, Augustus decreed, didn't he, that each man should return to his hometown. So Joseph uh, returned from his home in Galilee, in Nazareth, uh, to, uh, to Bethlehem. That was where he, he, uh, he originated from. Again, we could easily just pass that, uh, that, that by as just being, well, that was a, a simply a coincidence. Uh, and yet again, the scripture promised long, long ago that that was where the Messiah would come from. This is what uh, the prophet Micah said. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and from ancient times. Yet again, a promise is being fulfilled. Uh, The son of David would be born in David's city. Again, the promises come together uh, at the time of the Lord Jesus' birth. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, the uh, Lord Protector at the time of the Civil War, said famously, what is history but God's unfolding of himself? What is history but God's unfolding of himself? And don't we see that? in the birth of the Lord Jesus. We see that truth displayed so wonderfully. Uh, On the surface, it seems, doesn't it, that Rome is tightening her grip on the world, the Mediterranean world, tightening the power. And yet behind the scenes, as Luke pulls the curtain back, we can see that God is at work. Uh, He's working out his purposes. He's fulfilling his promises in order that he might uh, reveal himself more fully to the world. And what is true of these grand events of history that we uh, can see here is also true of the everyday. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We believe in a sovereign God, uh, do we not? A God who is interested not just in the grand events of history, the rulers who are being uh, raised up and thrown down, the uh, nation uh, shakers, but in the everyday events uh, that uh, control our lives. We might not fully understand exactly his purposes, what his plans are uh, for us. But we can be sure, we can be certain that in every single part of our lives, he is at work for his glory to achieve his purpose in our lives and in his world, just as he was back then uh, when the Lord Jesus was born. We can rest uh, in the promises uh, that are being fulfilled. Well, let's move on, shall we, to look at the birth itself. Uh, And I think the birth itself, uh, Luke is trying to teach us about the son's poverty, uh, the son's poverty, the poverty uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, From verse 6, Luke tells us, while they were there, uh, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them uh, at the inn. I guess in our mind's eye, most of us probably have a picture, don't we, of what that first uh, Christmas was like. It's one that we've got from countless Christmas carols and Christmas cards and uh, nativity plays. Uh, We have an idea, don't we, of what we think it ought to look like. Uh, And it can be quite a surprise, I think, to read uh, the gospel narratives afresh. Uh, They are surprisingly stark, aren't they? There's very very little we're actually told of Jesus' birth uh, here. Uh, most of the details that we uh, take as, uh, as given actually aren't here. They're, they're the result, really, of, of, of later Christian tradition. Uh, and yet, despite the, the, the sort of sparseness of the detail, uh, Luke is carefully telling us something 
about this baby who is at the heart of the story. Uh, What he's trying to say is reminding us of that truth, that he left a life of privilege uh, for a life of poverty. Uh, Think about it. Jesus, this child uh, born of Mary, is the very son of God. Uh, St. Paul says in Colossians, he was the firstborn. He is the firstborn over all of creation. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and end. He's the creator of the universe, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The writer of the Hebrews says that he is the radiance of God's glory uh, and the exact representation of his being. Uh, This baby deserved every living thing to give him praise. Uh, Even an earthly palace would have been uh, beneath him to have been born in that. And yet, what does Luke tell us uh, uh, happened to him? He was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Well, we don't really know the details about it. That word that the NIV's translated in can mean a whole variety of things, from a sort of spare room in somebody's house, like a guest room, uh, through to a sort of uh, youth hostel, I suppose, a sort of shared hostel where travellers could come and stay for a, for a small fee. Uh, there's an ancient tradition uh, that goes back many, many centuries, actually, which says that Jesus was uh, born in a cave. We don't know. We don't know what the truth is. Luke doesn't really uh, tell us the details. Uh, but whatever it was, we can be sure that it was uncomfortable. And it was definitely beneath him. It wasn't the silent night, the sort of holy night, uh, all is calm, all is bright of the Christmas carols at all. Uh, Jesus shared his birthplace with animals. Uh, He was placed in a feeding trough. Uh, The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge are expecting another child again, aren't they? Uh, There would be an outcry if that child was not born in the smartest maternity suite possible. Something would have gone desperately wrong. And yet the Lord Jesus is the king to whom every human king uh, should bow. And he didn't even get a warm bed. He got an outhouse somewhere. He was laid in a feeding trough. The son of God, the king of kings, was born in a barn. How does that work? Why were they there at all? Well, Luke tells us it was because uh, there was no room at verse 7. In other words, Jesus was unwanted and unrecognized. Uh, The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. Uh, But when he arrived, we find that they didn't recognize him. Maybe they were too busy. We don't know. Maybe they just didn't really care that much. Maybe they'd forgotten about the promises. Who knows? Too distracted. Uh, But ultimately what happened was that the inhabitants of Bethlehem that first night rejected him. It's a hint, isn't it? It's the first hint, I guess, of what St. John said would be uh, the pattern for all of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Remember what he said right at the start of his gospel. Uh, He, Jesus, came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. It's exactly what happened here. Jesus came to God's chosen people, and yet they didn't see him. The pattern of Jesus' birth was the pattern for his life. He grew up in poverty, He didn't even have a place to lay his head, so he tells us uh, in the Gospel accounts. Uh, At first, he was fated by the crowds. They couldn't get enough of him, and yet, uh, as uh, his ministry went on, they turned on him. The child that was laid in that cold wooden box that first Christmas night was the man who grew up who was laid on a wooden cross. 
to die for those same people who had rejected him and refused his rule in their lives. That child who fought for breath on that first night in the cold air when he'd first come out of his mother's womb was the same man who would fight for breath on the cross. That body which was wrapped in swaddling cloths by his mother would grow up to be wrapped in grave cloths and laid in a cold grave that first Easter weekend. And that rejection that Jesus suffered at his birth, in his ministry, in his earthly life, uh, continues today. Uh, One Bible commentator put it like this. When Christ first came among us, we pushed him into an outhouse. (coughs) Excuse me. And we've done our best to keep him there ever since. When Christ first came among us, we pushed him into an outhouse. Excuse me. And we've done our best to keep him there ever since. And yet this baby, this baby that we've pushed out into an outhouse, is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one who, St. Paul says, became poor in order that we might become rich. And he calls each one of us now to let him rule in our hearts and lives. So that question that faces us this evening is the same issue that faced the residents of Bethlehem that first Christmas Eve. Uh, Those words from St. John's Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Uh, The question is the same. Will we give him, the Lord Jesus, the rule of our hearts and our lives? Or will we turn him away? Will we reject him as he was rejected that first Christmas night, as he's been rejected ever since? We often sing, don't we, at Christmas, that Christmas carol, the line, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Uh, it's a prayer. It's a prayer that this, uh, this uh, little baby who was rejected by the world would find acceptance in our hearts uh, to come into rule. Uh, may that be true for each of us this evening. Well, let's look finally at the announcement uh, that Luke tells us, the announcement of the, of the birth. Uh, and I think Luke wants to tell us uh, that it talks about the Saviour's peace. The Saviour's peace. We move on uh, to from verse 8. Uh, I guess most of us can think of times in our life uh, when we've had uh, important news or good news to share with people. Maybe it's uh, exam results or driving test or engagement or something like that. I don't know. But when you think about it, who we tell first Uh, says rather a lot, doesn't it? Each of us in our mind has a pecking order of the person that we tell. Uh, Perhaps we tell our parents first, or our spouse, or our partner, or uh, somebody close to us, one of our friends. Uh, We certainly do that before sticking it on Facebook or Twitter. It'd be something a bit odd, wouldn't it, if you told uh, the world first before telling your very, very closest friends. Because who we tell matters. It's important. And the same is true, actually, at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Who the angels tell first is significant. It tells us something about who is important in God's uh, economy. Uh, The angel had good news of great joy, we're told, uh, for all people. And the first people who were told were shepherds. Why was that? Why did uh, the angel uh, tell the shepherds? Well, shepherds in Bible times uh, were very familiar parts of the, uh, the landscape uh, at the time. It was an agricultural community, so uh, there were plenty of them uh, uh, around. 
Uh, I guess most of us probably have a quite romanticised view of them. You know, we think of them, you know, these sort of kindly old men in, with, uh, with tea towels on their heads, sort of floating around looking after fluffy sheep or something. Uh, but actually, that's a, that's a far cry from the position that they had in Bible times. Uh, in Bible times, they were largely despised. Uh, they had a full-time occupation. Uh, they, they were looking after the sheep uh, all the time. Uh, so they really didn't have any time to participate in any of the kind of great religious gatherings, religious feasts. They were really outsiders regarding the, uh, the religious life of the time. Uh, you can think about it, can't you? They were living side by side with their sheep. Uh, they uh, didn't have showers or anything like that. These guys were pretty, uh, pretty messy. Uh, they couldn't give attention to detail to all those uh, long lists of purity laws that the Jews valued so much. Uh, in the eyes of certainly religious Jews, these guys were completely unclean. Uh, you wouldn't have found a religious Jew hanging around with a shepherd at all. Uh, they were a little bit like the travelling community uh, in, in our own age. Uh, they, uh, of course, would travel around. Uh, and as soon as there was a crime in the vicinity, you could guarantee it would, be, uh, it would be pinned on the shepherds. They were always blamed for thefts and petty crime and all kinds of stuff that went wrong. Everyone just blamed it on the shepherds because they were convenient. Uh, even uh, in the course of law, their testimony was disallowed, uh, which tells you something about how uh, low they were in, uh, in the eyes of society. Apart from lepers, they were pretty much at the bottom of society. And yet the truth is that it's these people, these despised people, that the society of the time had turned their back on, uh, that uh, Jesus has come to save. Uh, think back a few weeks ago, we saw, didn't we, that Mary rejoiced in, her, in uh, the Magnificat, that the coming of Jesus would bring down the proud and exalt the humble. And we see that right from the very start of Jesus' birth. Jesus has come to bring salvation for the very, very worst of people, the outcasts whom the rest of society has completely written off and has nothing to do. Jesus has come for them. He's come for the people who are the worst in the eyes of the world. And yet there's actually another reason, I think, uh, why the angel visited the shepherds. And it points uh, to the future of uh, this baby uh, that the angel announces. Uh, Bethlehem is a small place, uh, but it was quite significant in the life of uh, Israel. Uh, It was the place where the flocks that supplied uh, the lambs to the temple were located. Uh, The temple... uh, uh, had um, a uh, sort of special flocks um, in order to uh, have a constant supply of animals uh, for the sacrifices uh, that went on uh, every day. Every morning and uh, every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple by the uh, priests. Uh, it was, they were sacrificed uh, for the sins of the people. You can read about that in uh, Exodus 29 if you're interested. That's when it was uh, instituted. Uh, And it happened all the way through Israel's history. Nothing, war or famine uh, aside, nothing uh, interrupted that. It happened every day without fail. Of course, in themselves, the sacrifices didn't achieve anything. Uh, They were useless because the writer of the Hebrews tells us that the blood of uh, animals can't deal with sin. Uh, They were a picture of what God had promised to do one day uh, for his people. And you remember, won't you, uh, the famous words of John the Baptist right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, we can start drawing the dots, can't we, and joining, uh, the connect- making the connections together. Uh, Jesus is the one, this baby who has been born, who the angel is telling of, 
uh, is the one who, by his sacrificial death, will deal once and for all with the problem of sin uh, that has separated God and man. He is the one who will restore peace uh, between a God who is holy, who is righteously angry at his people's sin, and uh, a rebellious world. The prophet Isaiah said, didn't he, in chapter 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Uh, These shepherds are being issued with their P45s. They're being made redundant. They won't won't be needed because Jesus will fulfill uh, the task for which their their sheep uh, are being kept. No wonder the angels sang, glory to God and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. What good news that there can be peace between God and man. On the 11th of November in 1918, at five o'clock in the morning, in a railway coach in a, uh, in a forest just uh, north of Paris, uh, representatives from uh, the Allies and from uh, Germany uh, met to sign what was called the Armistice Agreement. Uh, it was the agreement that put an end to the First World War. Uh, the agreement was signed at five o'clock in the morning, uh, and it was announced but it didn't come into fulfilment until some hours later. It came into, uh, into, into force, of course, at 11am. That's why we uh, keep silence, don't we, uh, on uh, Armistice Day at 11am. Uh, it meant that the world was no longer at war. Uh, the years had gone past, blood had been shed on both sides with uh, seemingly little result. Uh, the world was no longer at war. And the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus tells us that peace has been negotiated between heaven and earth. We're no longer at war. Uh, And the angel announces it, uh, but it will take some time for it to be put into fulfilment, for it will mean the Lord Jesus, this baby that they've announced, uh, dying that early Easter day. Because of this child, we can rejoice that we can be friends with God. We can have that relationship that our sin has broken. As we gather around the Lord's table in a few moments, we can recall, can't we, with thankfulness, his redeeming work. And we recommit ourselves to the work of making it known in our broken and fractured world, just as the shepherds did, uh, we're told. Well, the Emperor Augustus, uh, who we started with, uh, had a famous boast. He boasted that uh, he had instigated what was called the Pax Romana, the peace that would last forever, uh, that uh, put an end to the fighting that had characterised uh, the uh, history up until his rule. Uh, it, was a, it was a grand boast, and uh, predictably, as all these grand boasts are, they uh, came to nothing. Uh, he he was, uh, soon found himself in, in, uh, in the middle of war, and uh, he wasn't able to put an end to it. The birth of Jesus, by contrast, uh, ushers in real peace, true peace between God and his world put into the right time, in effect, at the right time in history, through the Son, uh, who rules in righteousness in our hearts. He gave up uh, the claims of heaven to serve us. And one day he will return to claim us as his own and to rule uh, in righteousness. Let's respond, shall we, in uh, thanks and praise. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, how we praise you that you were obedient to the Father's call. You gave up uh, your rights in heaven to come to earth, to be born in that squalid uh, uh, situation. 
among the animals. And that we praise you that you were obedient through your life. You grew up to die on the cross, to rise again, to make peace between us and God. We cannot thank you enough. Uh, We praise you so much that peace is restored. Uh, And we pray that as we uh, reflect on that, as we gather around your table, uh, you would uh, convict us afresh, assure us, we pray, of the peace that we have uh, with heaven. And indeed, we ask uh, that you would uh, make us ready to tell others of that good news, just as the shepherds did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.